Welcome to America This Week from the Harris Poll for Friday, August 19th. I'm John Gersma. As always, I'm with my co-host Libby Rodney. Libby, what's going on? Hey, John. Happy mid-August. <laughs> happy mid-August and happy almost back to school. Can you believe it? Are you ready? Oh, now? I'm I'm very excited for it. I cannot <laughs> wait with young children at home. <laughs> you and Robert are ready to get those guys out the door. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we're the same way. I mean, I'm not actually. I, I'm going to miss my little my little peanut, but we're taking her back to Syracuse next Thursday. So I can't believe the summer's winding down. But um, hey, let's talk uh, talk about data. We have a lot of great stuff to share in the next half hour. And um, you know, if you're new to our program, Libby and I are pollsters that take a look at society each week through the lens of a, a just a range of different uh, surveys and ideas that are coming to us through our clients, through uh, work that we do on our own with the Harris Poll. And so we've got a couple of, uh, I think, some pretty good stories to share. But first, I just want to say, if you like our banter, please leave us a review. Also, if you've got an idea for a poll, send us a note on uh, LinkedIn or Twitter. So Libby, we're in wave 129 of weekly tracking since the pandemic began, if you can believe that. Mm-hmm. And um, we've got sort of four things to talk about. And the first one that I'll tee up is, uh, you know, we ha- went through this period that it was the great resignation, and now it's the quiet quit. We're going to talk about these workers that are sort of doing a, a Homer Simpson fade into the bushes. Um, for the second story, you've got a, a, an interesting take on Gen Z. Yeah, kind of going along with the quiet quit in another way is that they're actively saying, show me the money. They're more likely to walk away from jobs and, and look for a new job and pursue something different in, in this moment. So as they fade away into the bushes, they're seeking alternative plans. <laughs> <laughs> they're hiding all that extra money in the bushes, apparently. Um, you've also going to talk on the third story about this idea I thought was really interesting around the reworking of ambition. Can you describe that? Yeah. So reworking of ambition is just a a value shift of how do we define ambition? And it's much different than how we used to define it around hustle culture. And it's a little bit more complex and multidimensional, really being driven by millennials and Gen Z realizing what they were doing before was not bringing them happiness. Excellent. Well, speaking of of happiness, there's a lot of unhappiness, as you know, with supply chains. But we're (laughs) going to delve deeper into that and actually look past the problem into its impact on brand loyalty as our forest story. But as always, you know, you and I always kick it off with the weekly numbers, uh, what just came out of the field. And here's a quick rundown. Uh, Love your take on, on anything you see here. Um, The first is that concern among Americans about the economy remains high. Um, That is uh, at 85%. That also includes the the issues of inflation. But that's unchanged, so that's remained uh, the same. But what has sort of ticked up slightly is the 8 and 10 uh, Americans who are concerned over random acts of violence. Obviously, that that, uh, really sad news of the attack on on. Author Semen Rushdie was in the news this week, might have driven that a little bit. Um, 76% around political divisiveness, that's up three points. And obviously we had the raid on Mar-a-Lago, sort of the in, 
the debate around the role of the FBI and some attacks on the FBI. So I think that's sort of self-explanatory. 69% on the war on Ukraine, that's actually down three points. And 58% concern about a new wave of COVID is down five points. However, that is replaced by concern, of course, about monkeypox at 39%. But Libby, I thought what was interesting about that is, you know, we have an 18 point, uh, I'm sorry, an 11 point shift uh, on that number to um, to parents at 58%. So clearly yeah. there's significant concern, right, with back to school. Yeah. I think all parents are just, um, I got a tweet the other day from someone that said, all my money goes to childcare or preschool, yet it's closed half of the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think I think parents are just like, please don't let this be the next thing that closes uh, child care or school for a week or weeks at a time that I just can't handle. I think a lot of parents are at this crippling point where it's like, I do need to get back to work and I can't handle more interruptions. And please don't make me be everything to everyone. <laughs> That's really interesting, right? It's not just about the the public health fear or the concern of contracting it, it's really the, the service interruptions, right? The closing. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Then possible hmm. pressures we put on ourselves to do all right. these things. Right. Well, hey, okay, let's get in and talk about quiet quit. There's some really interesting stuff in here, I think. Um, so, you know, we're nearly three years um, into this state of what I think could be described as COVID burnout. And I think this maybe set the stage in this data, Libby. Clearly, there was a lot of concern with the extreme amount of layoffs. You had employers really pushing employees. It was rah, 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 do our best. Let's get through the pandemic together. And you had people that were really burned out. And we're starting to see that in this new survey that we just released this week with USA Today. And, um, you know, I think it's kind of interesting. There's some different parts of it. And I think quiet quitting is pretty well understood right now, but this is basically the the description or meme around American workers sort of putting their careers into cruise control and sticking by their job descriptions and not going that extra mile. So you're not quitting, you're not, but you're not really thriving either. And so what's happening in this, I thought was interesting, uh, is a couple things. Number one, workers are more emboldened. So nearly half of American workers told us this week at 46%, um, they're concerned about losing their jobs, but that is down five points from last week, and that is down 12 points from April. So I think this Libby overlaps with a little bit of that sort of meh recession, uh, meh session idea that we talked about. You know, people are yeah. starting to say, maybe this isn't going to be as bad. But I thought what was really interesting in here, Libby's are also less happy. Over half of Americans, 42%, American workers don't feel like they can live on their salary. That's obviously related to inflation. And nearly 6 in 10, 58%, have considered quitting their job in the past two years, with nearly 4 in 10, 39%, say they're likely to quit their job in the next year. And lastly, they're ready to test the market. Six in 10 agree that they could readily seek out a job with higher pay, with 62% also saying I'm likely to quit my job if I received another offer. So Libby, what do you sort of take out of that? You seem to have a lot of free agents <laughs> thinking they could get ready to move around. 
Yeah. So I think, well, I think this is so interesting, just the term quiet quitting. I mean, the virality of, of how it's been picked up on, on kind of social media channels, or especially like LinkedIn channels and the back and forth and the heated debate that happens around it are just super fascinating. And I think the thing is like, one thing to recognize is this is most business leaders like biggest fear this is like exactly what they're worried about and why they're telling people to like return to the office because they're like oh you're just turning off a screen and you're just not working as hard and now i can't monitor you right but you know those those signals and indicators are not going to really get move the needle um but the second one and the most important one is like it's the context of this right before the pandemic the engagement employee engagement rates were really low before the pandemic there was really ma- there's a massive burnout in workplace culture um and even the who um the world health organization deemed it like a critical thing that corporate workplaces had to solve for so i think to your point john earlier that the pandemic just put fuel on that and we all had to run and sprint through this time and maybe now we're more in a marathon it's like companies really it's up to them um to get people excited to be working to get people excited to turn on but also there's just it's worth noting a conversation that's just happening culturally around what is the role of work in our lives. Um, and that's especially being happened by younger people. And, you know, um, I've heard really interesting, uh, Gen Xers kind of speak on this where they said, you know, my whole life was designed to find personal fulfillment and passion, all these multidimensional elements in my work. The same way that we used to think about that as like a partner relationship. It's like, oh, everything should belong at work. And now, you know, younger generations are saying, oh, well, maybe I find a little bit of that in my work, but I find a lot of that in all other aspects of my life. So I think they're just dimensionalizing and taking a much more holistic approach at maybe what they want. Um, The last thing I'm going to say on this is Ariana Huffington kind of had this interesting point on it on LinkedIn. She was very against this idea of quiet quitting because she was like, this leads to disengagement and just, you know, what are the implications of all of that? Um, But I think what she said that was interesting is how do you create joyful joining? Like how do you create joy in the next job you take? And I think that's actually really interesting for companies to wrap their heads around. It's like, well, not just like to, um, to make sure people aren't quite quitting, but it's like, how do you get them engaged to show up, engaged to participate, engaged to raise their hands, you know? And so I think it's just a, it comes fundamentally more at the design process of all that. That's really interesting. And I think, you know, what you were also talking about so important is that this has been building over time. I mean, you know, you and I have been doing these surveys every week since the pandemic began and Jack Cooney, our executive producer, who's also a human search engine, went back into the um, into the data this week and she found a couple interesting things, but she found um, back in May of 2020, right? That was like just a month or two into the pandemic. Um, 
you had already 51% of employees said they were more likely to work in their pajamas than get dressed. Mm -hmm. And then six months later, we were all getting excited about we were going to return to work. Um, that was the, the potential that that might happen early on in the pandemic, as you might recall. And we had 36% of, of American workers said they'd missed their athleisure and their pajamas and their sweatpants. More seriously, I think there was this like, as you said, Libby, a building tension pre-COVID around a value shift, around, you know, balance versus work to live. You know, we found in our survey, for example, with Talkspace that, you know, over half of U.S. workers at 51% felt, felt burnt out from work um, from an, an April survey this year. And so it does it. To me, it makes a lot of sense that, that sort of the, all the rules went out the window. And then you suddenly had this dynamic, right, where you actually weren't being monitored. And that became Lord of the Flies. And this I thought was fantastic. So Jack found in 2021, early on, 21%, ready for this, of all mm -hmm. American workers and over a quarter of Gen Z millennial employees admitted to online shopping while in a meeting <laughs> or <laughs> while working. And then you also had 24% of them say they were streaming shows while working <laughs> with 22% saying that they were setting their email status to active while doing personal things to appear busy with work. What do you make of this? I mean, I feel like we've pushed workers to just, you know, go to this point of, of just crushing it during the pandemic. And now you seem to be seeing this backlash, this reappraisal. I mean, are there any frameworks or anything you've seen that might explain where this goes next? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think um, ultimately what you have to think about is what's the center of gravity and like what are you measuring and why and put a little bit of mission behind that. So I think it, there's been a lot of like stories around um, young people like putting like things on their mouse to make it seem like there's always activity and action. So A, I think when people are monitored, it doesn't help. <laughs> like that's just, you know, there's always a way to get around that. The system can be rigged in a lot of different ways, but the idea that you're monitoring me means you don't trust me, means that I don't trust you, means that why would I put, you know, loyalty and, and trust into this relationship. But ultimately what's, what's the, what's the thing that you're, you're circling around. And if the thing that you're circling around is just productivity, well, it still is not like, it, there's still no ends to a mean there. So like, what's, what's the overall objective. And I think what young people have been a little bit disillusioned by is like, is the overall objective just to make money and to earn more profits. And obviously that creates financial stability for them, but I don't think it's enough for them. And so I think we're companies kind of miss it is like, oh, we have to have this great meaty mission, but actually it's just, what are the operating principles of your organization? And if it's productivity, what's the means to that end? And ultimately it probably should be something more like well-being or wellness, right? And how you, you know, steward around that, create stewardship. Um, I think those are the, and what I've noticed from talking to people, because we do a lot of, we talk to a lot of young people about these issues is it's like the smallest things that actually signal that you care about your employees, whether it's well-being stipends once a month or whether it's um, like at Bombas, they give out, they let their employees give out free socks to homeless people um, or those who are unhoused um, on their way home from work. And so it just, it keeps back 
around like, well, what is, what is the thing that we're circling around? And I think mm. that is kind of how you have to think about it. That's a really good way to put it. And it's also interesting kind of segue into this next story that with companies not giving those signals, the things that Gen Z are left with right now are paradoxically sort of money, right? If you're not going to give me these other things, you're going to make me do this job. I, I want more money. And that's kind of what you're seeing in this data, right? Yeah. So their second story is Gen Z, show me the money. Um, <laughs> but, you know, um, but, I, but I think that's, that's a really good point. It's like, if you're going to monitor me too, and you're going to not bridge that trust with me, our second story really hits on, okay, well then, Gen Z's are really going to think of themselves as free market agents, right? They're going to think about themselves as, you know, I think about basketball and I don't know enough about it, but my husband watches it all the time, but just this ability to move from team to team and ask for what you're worth. And so we see that in our data. We see that, um, they're more likely to ask for a current raise. They're um, more likely to walk away for a better offer. Um, and why? Why? Why is this the case? So, for also this relates to millennials, but over half of millennials at 57% and Gen Z at 55% of workers report they don't feel like they can live in the, on their salary today. Um, and so, you know. Why? Why? Why is that the case? Well, it's inflation <laughs> and our rising grocery prices, but it's also the crazy rise of housing prices, and that's impacting also rent prices ac across the country. So they're getting squeezed, right? The student loans, like all that forgiveness act, hasn't totally passed for most young people. And so um, we talked about this on a previous story, but they also have high salary expectations when they a number that they felt that would be financially secure for them for Gen Z is 171K and millennials, it's 133K. But I guess like I'm trying to understand those numbers. And I guess if you think about Gen Z is graduating with an average debt of 50 to 60,000 out of college and many of them much more than that. And then home prices have risen exponentially. And then rent, John, now is a $2,000 for a one bedroom across the US. Like they have to be making more money to then be saving money to feel financially stable. And so the first thing that they're going to do is look for high, or lock in the higher pay now. So younger workers believe that it, they will also be the first to go if a recession strikes. So they're kind of prepping and padding their their savings accounts at 48% of Gen Z and 46% of millennials. And then two thirds of millennials um, and 58% of Gen Z said that they would readily seek out a job with higher pay. Um, John, I think what's kind of interesting about this, though, is if you look at what's happening in organizations and corporations, um, a recent study that came out by PwC pulled um, 700 U.S. executive and board members, and half of them said they're terminating workers or plan to, and 52% said they're implementing a hiring freeze. So this idea, it's there's like a short amount of time that millennials or Gen Z could probably lock in these higher raises or move, and corporate America is, is really reacting quickly to a potential that we're going into a recession or a miscession, but they're kind of 
they're acting quickly on it. And so, John, I'm so curious from your point of view, you know, is this something that Gen Z and millennials are doing just because they haven't been through a lot of these cycles and they should be really hunkering down and we don't see, you know, Gen Xers or boomers act in the same way? Like, or is this just a new value set, do you think? Wow. Well, that's a really good question. I mean, as a guy who's seen a couple cycles now, <laughs> I have, I'm a little more, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little more apt to surf it the way you talk about how Americans surf variants. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think you raise a really interesting point, Libby, that, you know, younger folks haven't been through this. And if you think about it, you know, if you're under 60, this is just the craziest economic times you've ever seen you know, in your life, you wouldn't have had that experience, right? 40 year historic inflation and, you know, mortgage rates at, at 5% and even higher. And so I think it does feel very, very uh, dislocating and would cause you to do what, what you're saying in the story, which is lock in a higher rate or switch jobs um, and not understand that, that businesses are actually acting on a cycle and that workers, particularly as you get a little bit older and more established, you realize that cycle and you start to sort of adjust to it. Um, but I, I think what's really even more interesting than the economics is what you're talking about with the value shift. I, I was writing down as you were talking, I love this this point you made about, you know, you're not bridging that trust with me. So what's the means to that end? And I think that's really interesting. It really does connect here, doesn't it, Libby? Because, you know, they're asking for pay, but what they're really asking for, I think, is for companies to sort of understand their values and get aligned with their values. And if not, like, what is the value exchange here? Right. Because at the at the fun, uh, fundamental point, it's money. But if, like... If the values aren't there, then you just go to the next competitive bidder, right? So there's a there's a deep analysis to why we create relationships the way we do, why we show up at work the way we do, et cetera. And then if a lot of that is removed, right, people just start to go, okay, well, what? you know, it's a bidding war. What, what can I get paid? And I'm going to move and I'm going to jump and I'm going to, um, understand that. But I also think it, it, it goes back to a lot of research we talked about earlier this year where employees like want to learn, they want to be invested in, they want to feel like this is a place that they can grow roots. And what a lot of companies are saying is, I don't, I'm not sure that's the case. And we might let you go in six months, 12 months. They're not, you know, fundamentally setting up the structures for those things to happen. And companies have been through a pandemic too. So it's not like they're evil and they're, they're doing that on purpose, but it's a lot of, um, agility and movement we've gone through. And so there's going to be a lot of things that kind of, you know, been tossed up to the air. And then it's like, what is going to fall down from that and what's going to land? And companies need to be really thinking about that right now. Um, And I think the measurement of just returning people back to an office is going to drive just the desire that I should be paid more because this is something that I don't necessarily want to do. Right. Yeah, Um, precisely. Precisely. And this does, I mean, not to skip skip around, but it does sort of layer one more story, which is the third one that you did this, this really interesting piece on Libby, which I think we should just continue this conversation, right? Because this is yeah. really about the reworking of ambition, because I think these things sort of all are all connected. Yeah, they're all connected. Be- uh, so the third story is, how do we 
as we value shift, so as people have turned inward during the pandemic, our big question was, what does that look like for ambition? How do we redefine success around that? And before we were in such, you know, a hustle and hype culture, you know, grind, grind, grind. And then to your point, John, during the pandemic, we just, we just, either some of us stopped or we kept grinding to the point we were burnt out and and paralysis, right? So everyone is recognizing that is not healthy. So we went out to the market and we said, you know, what does a happy life look like? And and things like that. And we found that two thirds of American Americans said their idea of a happy life shifted during the pandemic and it especially shifted among young workers um, at 74% of millennials and 68% of Gen Z who are reassessing their lives and goals. So that is a huge thing right now. Yeah. People under 40 reassessing how they live and what their goals are. And it's really important to figure out where you belong in that kind of tunnel of reassessment. Um, I think another thing here that's interesting is 55% of all Americans feel they've been sold false promises about what would make them happy, but that's especially 70% of millennials. So, and you find that because millennials are more mid-age, right? right now, right? They're in the roles maybe they dreamed of and they say, oh, this isn't, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And so you see them making kind of dramatic moves and pushes and pulls around that. Um, And we also see that 75% of Americans want to learn how to be more present in their day-to-day lives. And that usually is like, I want to spend more time with my family. Closeness is really important. I want to spend more time on what I decide makes me happy, how I want to intentionally design my life. Um, And then we also see they really are focusing on their energy rather than their money. So 64% of Americans are optimizing their energy rather than their money, which has huge implications for financial institutions who are always talking about Mm -hmm. optimizing your money and your goals. And it's like people are saying, I can have all the money in the world, but if I don't have energy to participate with that money, what's the point? And I think that's where the pandemic just like pushed us off the curve to make us start to reevaluate all these things. Um, But, you know, John, like as we think about these things, right, this idea that we're going to find happiness somewhere else and we're reevaluating our lives and redesigning our lives, like that seems to intersect so much with the tensions we're seeing in the workplace. You know, how do, how do companies, how should companies even start to approach that? Cause these are seem like big value shift type of conversations that don't happen with just a, a tactic or um, a way to ignore it and hope that it just goes back to where it was. <laughs> do you know, um, yesterday I, I got a chance to to spend time with you in the office. It was super fun. We were, we were banging on some strategy ideas. And remember, we went back to that Milken uh, Institute Harris Poll listening project data with business executives. And we found that 76% of executives said that changing generational values were going to be a significant disruptor into their business in the year ahead. And then we had stats on um, NFTs and Web3, and it was like less than a third. And you sagely pointed out, you were like, well, 
this is what <laughs> this changing generations actually care about. And yeah, and work from about. home was in there, remember? Right, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so all these things, it's one thing to talk about, yeah, we'll change the generation. I think they look at it like risk management, like it's a threat, rather than looking at like, wow, people are changing. Like our lives are opening up. People are, this is a time of great reappraisal. And I'm not trying to be kind of all soft and preachy here. I'm being really serious. I think this is like a significant, you know, cultural pivot and not just for young people. I think people at, at home have started to say, well, hey, there's lots of other things I can do than just define my health and happiness through, through my work and what I do. I mean, that's that's really clear in, in all this data. And so, you know, I think, look, at, I, I mean, this is a subject for an entirely other pod. I think that HR needs to be just dramatically reinvented. I, I believe that human resources is the core of innovation in companies. You know, you, you can't just say culture anymore. You have to be culture. And these companies are going to have to rework how they're thinking about what they are and what they offer um, if they're going to get, get people to work for them. And, um, I, you know, yes, I know the economics are, are what they are and people need salaries to live on and, and all that. But I just think greater competition, greater fractional jobs, which everyone are, are doing right, that we see in our data, there's just a significant yeah. number of opportunities for people to earn an income and to define their happiness through maybe two or three different jobs, not just your typical job going to the office. So John, I love the point you made that it's not just about young people, because we've talked a lot about this, but it was in past podcasts or maybe LinkedIn lives where older um, mm -hmm. workers, right, boomers, they don't want to stop working and they want work from home options. They want to be able to work for hours and then do whatever their passion or hobby or activity is. Um, and it's it's like interesting. There's an insurance company, I think it's called Saga out of the UK, that particularly hires these people because their insurance company is for people specifically over 50. And now they're giving one week sabbaticals for if you're a new grandparent. And so they're kind of reimagining what people actually want and how you can be more flexible to this desire that work doesn't have to take over or be your entire life, but it, it can be it can be meaningful in the construct of your entire life, not just your working life, you know? I love that. I love that. Well, more on this because this is a mm -hmm. significant trend and it's only going to continue. Um, let's wrap it up and talk about um, a survey that we did on supply chains. And I think there's a an interesting take on this that I want you to sort of maybe pull apart, Libby, but the whole idea that supply chains are really about trust chains. And well, let me set up the data first. So clearly, you know, before COVID, supply chains were sort of a wonky um, logistics term, and now it's sort of a, in the cultural air, as we know. 80% um, of Americans, for instance, are familiar with U.S. labor shortages. And we asked of those who are familiar, 45% um, are telling us that, yes, they can't find certain items in stores. Uh, you know, they see restaurants with reduced hours at 41%. They've had 
purchases delayed or canceled completely at 35%, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously summer, this summer with everybody's YOLO, FOMO travel made it even worse. Anybody who's been <laughs> on a plane knows that or tried to take an Uber and basically had to get a, a, take out a second mortgage. So, you know, with that though, what I thought was super interesting here was that on one hand, consumers do seem a little zen. They're a little forgiving uh, in aggregate. In fact, 63% of Americans told us that they find supply chain disruptions understandable, given what's going on, the pandemic, monkeypox, Russia, etc. <laughs> but Libby, I really want you to explain this to me because millennials are saying, hell no. They are the <laughs> least forgiving. Um, we asked this question and we pulled apart the demos. 40% of millennial consumers actually expect companies to honor their service commitments and disruptions are unacceptable. <laughs> and then lastly, of those who have experienced supply chain problems, you know, whether it's poor customer service or shipments that have been canceled, 68% um, of all Americans say they would switch to a competitor brand but that number jumps up to 81% of millennials. What is going on here, Libby? Well, <laughs> I think it's just that, you know, so part of me, the first reaction I had was, oh, well, it's obvious. Millennials are parents and they're busy mm -hmm. and they have a lot of things going on. But then after more reflection and kind of uh, articles you and I have been sharing um, that are recently in Fortune, also Atlantic, about this golden age of um, convenience is coming to an end. Also, the Atlantic had a great piece about um, millennials' subsidies are over. And basically, so if you think about millennials coming to age, they've come to age in an era of going from 14-day delivery to two day to 24 hours to <laughs> two hour delivery, right? So their yeah. expectations are like, it should be instant. It should be overnight. Yeah. I mean, Suggestions. this is the instant gratification generation. They're like, right. what is going on? Everything was just a lot, a lot logistical problem. And then all the, you know, big billion dollar companies of our times to Atlantic's piece around subsidies were offset by big venture capitalist funding, right. right? So Uber, everything was cheap and everything should become instant. Everything should service me. And I think the difference between millennials growing up in that world is their expectations are kind of set, you know, as they're aging into that, um, where, where they have some, you know, they, they have some conscious and moral conscious around it, but their behaviors have been set. So their expectations are there. Whereas Gen Z has less, they have more moral conscious about it. And like, what does it mean to frontline workers? What does it mean to communities of color? Like all the intersectionality of that. Gen Z talks about a lot when it comes to the supply chain. And then older consumers just knew a time where it, everything wasn't so convenient. And so they think about a different kind of trade-off in that way. And so I think that's where you get this like really tough millennial consumer who's like, give it to me, give it to me now. This is my expectation. Um, and then 
trade, like make a trade-off where it's still morally and ethically aligned with my values, but I still want it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's so interesting. And we'll put these articles in the show notes. There was a, two really great ones. One from the Atlantic you talked about and the other one from FT about sort of the end of consumer convenience. And I think another factor in this you, you touched on with VCs is that that was also an era of cheap money, right? Mm-hmm. So low interest rates obviously sort of, you know, pushed VCs and startups to go for scale, even if you weren't at profitability. You know, I don't think Uber and Lyft made a lot of money early on. This was all about capturing market share. And yeah. so finding, you know, the fastest way to sort of scale and then with interest rates rising and money tightening everywhere, you suddenly started to see uh, a different dynamic and a, and a different emphasis. And I, I don't know, I, d- I do find that really interesting because now you're in this era where you basically took the lollipop away from the kid. <laughs> yeah. And, right? Yeah. So I mean, it's, how does this it's, resettle? Yeah. And it's just hard once, once behaviors and expectations are set and it doesn't matter when it's, it really matters when it's set, right? It's got like those foundational years of your twenties and your thirties, like learning how to be an adult, doing your adulthood thing. So when it's taken back, it just, it takes you longer time to process. Um, although it does seem that Gen Z is kind of up influencing millennials to think about their implications of a fast, convenient society and what are their implications if you do things slower. Um, And so I think what's cool about Gen Z is we know youth culture kind of dominates our cultural perspective and value lens. It just happens to be that way, especially in America. Um, And they are a much slower, considerate generation. And I think that actually starts to influence the way millennials think about parenting because there's all these new movements around parenting that is about being a slow parent that you like slow down with your child and you teach them about the implications of things that happen. Yet these same millennial parents are buying, you know, <laughs> next day delivery on Amazon to get their kids' favorite toys so that they will be quiet for one second when they're in a work meeting. So, you know. It's the... Okay. So Libby just came up with a great marketing idea. So slow service. Right. It's just going to be artisanal, sort of deliberate, take your time, build expectations. Um, (laughs) No, seriously, last thing on this, I I wanted your thought because there was one last bit of data here that I thought was interesting on this story, which is um, over half, 56% of American consumers, including 64% of millennial consumers, uh, said they'd be willing to pay higher prices for service guarantees, right? That could be non-cancelable flights or guaranteed shipments. I mean, your last take on this, do you think that this idea of frictionless, fast, guaranteed, is this sort of some new sort of era of luxury spending? I mean, is there an opportunity actually for, for companies to be thinking about how keeping your word is a, is a, is a luxury good worth a premium? Yeah, I think when I hear that, I immediately think of the airline service and how everything's become an upgrade class. And you can actually see it now in shopping and shipping. They're like, well, you can normally get it, you know, five to seven days. But if you want it in two days, like the two day and one day are becoming price points now. Right. And I'm thinking about um, our colleague who just moved into a new house and has to wait six months to get her couch and how she had to buy a futon at Target 
just to have a couch to sit on. So I'm thinking that she would probably pay a premium to get it shipped faster. And, um, but I think it will be, it will be a luxury. It will be a premium to get those things because there's the supply chain has probably forever altered in some ways with globalization, um, and issues. So that idea of being slow might become more of the cultural norm. And then if you need it fast, it'll become that luxurious experience versus the expectations of everyday items. Libby, I could talk to you about this stuff all afternoon. But Me we should, too, John. Uh, we should let, <laughs> let people get back into their day. Um, hey, I really appreciated uh, the time. That's our show. If you guys enjoy our discussion, please uh, leave us a review, but also really send us a poll question. It's Libby Rodney at LinkedIn. And what's your Twitter? Libby G. Libby G. It's, it's my and, old uh, name. <laughs> there, there you go. And uh, John Gersman at LinkedIn and also on Twitter. But Libby, have yourself a great weekend and a great weekend to everybody. This is America This Week from the Harris Bowl. <laughs>